Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today on Justice is Served, rapper Troy Ave and why police can now stop you at any time for any reason. Stay with us on Justice is Served. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Live. Justice is Served. Hello, Justice fans, and welcome to another show where we cover the latest in legal news every single week. Thanks for joining me, attorney Chelsea Galicia, and my co-hosts, who are also attorneys, Shaka Smith and Yemi Abayami. Right? (laughs) Success. All right. Fantastic. Let's dive into the news, which was good news this week for rapper Troy Ave as he found out that he wasn't going to face murder charges, but still some pretty serious charges stemming from a shooting in a uh, at a TI concert back in May 25th. So, Shaka, what's the lowdown on this one? Yeah, so generally good news, no murder charge, but I think they already expected there to be no murder charge, at least on um, his attorney's behalf. So his bodyguard, Ronald McFadder, was the one who was shot and killed, and they always contended that he never killed his own bodyguard, which uh, ballistics seemed to confirm. However, he does have a charge for um, attempted second-degree murder and four, uh, four gun possession charges. Uh, those are also felonies, those yeah. other gun charges. So even without the second-degree attempted murder charge, he is facing decades in prison. Yeah, but I, I would think that at least for attempted second-degree murder, you're still... Um, you can maybe argue self-defense, so hopefully that'll get him out of that charge, but the gun possession charges will probably... And I guess if we listen to the lyric, or I just read it, I haven't heard it, the lyric that came out of a track after he was arrested, yeah. that sort of is what he implies. Yeah, he recorded a track while he was at, in prison at Rikers, which he's allowed to do. For, in, inmates are allowed to make phone calls, and you can use your phone call ever, however you want. <laughs> and so in it, he says you know, that he um, flipped the tables on this person and grabbed the gun, and he professed his innocence. Um, so that might be, be one of his ways of just getting his message out there to the world that, again, it was a self-defense, mm-hmm. uh, an instance of self-defense, and, you know, he, he should and, be walking. And, of course, if he used the gun that someone was using on him in self-defense, then maybe the, the gun charges might disappear as well. Which I, I don't know how that makes sense in light of the video that came out. And, yes, his attorney said that the video doesn't show everything. Yeah. The video shows him pulling out a gun, and you see him firing at somebody who's off the screen. Yeah. So at this point, I don't know who the, um, the supposed victim of this second-degree um, murder attempt was. Um, I guess he's going to say it's the guy who he saw shoot his bodyguard. Yeah, I'd imagine. And you could always argue that in the VIP room prior to that, if there was some shooting, he took the gun from another you know, potential shooter, which might get rid of that gun charge. So t- very recently, within the last what day or so, he entered his plea in court of not guilty. Uh, he was in a wheelchair because I understand he's been shot in both legs. And some the, the claim was that he had shot himself, but I, I read that the, the trajectory of the bullet seems like it was like off the ground, uh, going upwards in his leg, but out the thigh. That was on the right, and then another bullet wound on the left leg. So it is pretty, I guess, ex- um, believable that he was in some way a victim here himself too. And I think his attorneys are pretty confident they're going to be able to to prove that they want to um, get him out on bail. They don't think that he's a flight risk. What do you think the judge is going to say about that? Well, I, th- I think he'll probably be granted the bail, and given his condition, um, I think he won't prob- likely be considered a flight risk. Right. He has no criminal history, and so that's something that speaks in his favor in terms of trying to get out on bail. 
and perhaps he can profess his innocence in like a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I apparently eager to do that. He should be careful about that. I mean, one of the things that um, you know people do, prosecutors, they'll try to use. I mean, he would try to use a, a rap song maybe in his own defense. Yeah. But he should be aware that prosecutors do try to use lyrics, and in New York, it's no secret that uh, the NYPD looks at rap lyrics um, just to get a sense of what's going on in the streets and what crimes might have been, you know, committed. Um, attendant to like certain grudges between gangs and so he should just be aware of that I think there was a circumstance where someone um, actually was with bail was withheld because he posted a YouTube video threatening the district attorney so you can hope that lyrics will work for you but just be aware be that careful. they can sometimes work against you it's probably good yeah. advice I hope he's listening yeah, Absolutely. alright so moving on to the Supreme Court case that now basically says, and by basically I mean absolutely, Mm -hmm. says that police officers can now stop you at any time for any reason, demand your ID, and if it turns up anything, including like a little traffic warrant, you can be arrested, searched on site, arrested on site, even if if it started out with you doing nothing wrong at all. We're talking here about the case of Utah versus Strife, where a, a guy who was in front of a drug house that was being investigated was questioned by a police officer just about what's going on in that house. And the officer demanded the man's ID, this uh, Edward Strife, I believe yeah, his name because is. Because he had a hunch and no actual reasonable suspicion. Just a hunch, right. Yeah. And so he asked for the ID. The ID, he ran it, turns out that the guy had a traffic warrant. And then, which, when there's a warrant for you and they can arrest you, they can then search you, obviously. And in that search, the police officer found meth in his sweater and so arrested him for that. And then, you know, the case goes up. And in law school, I learned about the fruits from a poisonous tree. Absolutely. Right? So this has to do with the Fourth Amendment where... The police can't gain something from an illegal search and then use it against you in court. That used to be a no-no. But apparently now, it's kind of fine. Right. I was so surprised when I read this case. I was like, I was, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is illegal. Like, we all learned this in uh, law yeah. school, the exclusionary rule. It was a huge, huge piece of um, criminal law. Everyone takes that in law school. So this was a really surprising Why is it decision not on to the see. front page of the news? This is huge. Yeah. I, it's, it's astonishing to me that it's not, because this is, this is massive. I mean, it used to be that police needed to have reasonable suspicion that you were doing something illegal yeah. before they could stop you and ask for your ID. Now, rules out the window they can ask you at any time. And I think because uh, Mr. Street, he's white, and so I think the issues of race that are so prominent with these illegal searches and seizures didn't um, br- weren't brought up in this, case. In, in this particular case, so you didn't get the national uh, presence of the case. And yeah. so I think, uh, I think it's very disheartening, and I think Sonia Sotomayor um, expressed in her dissent how disheartening this is because this really will disproportionately affect minorities. Yeah, so as crazy as this story was and the precedent that it now sets, which kind of seems inconsistent or shocking in light of the other similar cases um, on this issue. Um, It it came to the news because of Sotomayor's blistering dissent. You know, she dropped a bomb. Everybody was talking about this dissent. Not even people were talking about the, the principle itself of what this case now stands for. But the dissent was awesome because it combined her real life experience mm-hmm. her you know 
she's obviously legally intelligent of uh, uh, knowing the case law that comes before, and but also um, works of of art that like um, the new Jim Crow, the book, and yeah. other works that are not just of art but are, are of artful form of of telling us, showing us how things are for groups of people that we may not belong to, right? Mm-hmm. Mostly um, for minorities, although Sotomayor is, of, is a Latina. So I was, I was really surprised but not surprised that she also included things about, like, the Ferguson report, mm-hmm. showing that this isn't an, an isolated incident. This is systemic. Oh, she went into great, great detail um, referencing the Ferguson report, referencing lots of statistics from various police jurisdictions about um, the, the, the prevalence of warrants um, and how, 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 how many people are going to fall under this new ruling where, you know, any basically anyone who has a warrant out for their arrest, if they are stopped, it's kind of like beware because yeah. anything that's found on you in that instance... Um, there's no protection against that and I I think it's important because here what they were really saying was because it was was it It was mere mere negligence and a good faith mistake that the officer made um, in performing this illegal search so it makes no sense so there's going to be they're going to want to make some sort of distinction that oh it was it was mere error and we know in the law that we have these sort of rules uh, uh, behind mere mistake and if if it's just a mere mistake, we normally overlook it because the outcome would be the same. And I think she really wanted to show that the outcome won't be the same because this type of mere mistake is institutional. It's systemic. It's not a mere mistake. Right. Absolutely. And so she speaks against um, the the likelihood that now blacks and um, Hispanics will be sort of targeted very easily, um, that they are already stopped at a much higher rate, and this this is just inviting police to do it all the all the worse, right? Yeah, and she certainly brought up like the civil death you undergo when you're arrested from your employers or landlords or anyone performing right. a background check. And this also negatively uh, affects, like disproportionately, poor people who may get like a, a parking ticket or a speeding ticket and then can't pay it, and then they get a warrant for their arrest, and then now they can be searched, and yeah. you know they go down the legal rabbit hole that we have in the justice system. That's right. And I mean, I think it is really important to emphasize the impact of just the number of people that have warrants and how easy it is to go into communities um, where you do suspect something's going on, but you really have no basis for uh, assuming anything anything illegal has been committed by a certain individual. But you can't, this could potentially lead to these dragnet searches where you're just going in there with the hopes of finding out that this person has a warrant and then using that to get some more, to do some more digging. And it's strange because the court talks about how, oh no, this won't possibly lead to um, dragnet searches because, you know, one of the tests in the, um, the the test that they use to determine whether, um, I I guess the the search, the the evidence can be used is whether um, the circumstances that led to the finding of the evidence is attenuated and to the flagrancy of, you know, the officer's actions. And so typically that's something the the government has the burden of establishing that the this it wasn't um, a flagrant use. In this case, the guy said, oh, I was it was was just negligence. I didn't mean to make that mistake, (laughs) which is now the great defense of every officer. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other surprising or maybe not surprising um, thing about this case is that the majority opinion was written by the only black justice, Clarence Thomas. Uh, Surprise, not surprised. 
I mean, again, not, not really surprised. I mean, there's a reason I think Sonia Sotomayor is called the people's justice, because she really understands these issues as people that are being affected by them. And maybe Clarence Thomas has a disconnect in that way. Yeah, I think that he is uh, probably just as well-known as sort of being disconnected from the reality of people's experiences, mm-hmm. which is ironic because he is African-American, but apparently the, anybody is capable of being disconnected from reality, even if you're, you know, a member of the group that's disproportionately affected by bad case law. I think bad that's case law. why Sotomayor's dissent really resonated with a lot of people, because even though one justice might be accused of being uh, disconnected from the community, she was very um, straightforward about, as you mentioned, her personal experiences, talking about the indignities that come from being stopped, um, especially when it's an unlawful stop, um, how it feels degrading, how it then allows them to take you to the police station, get you know get swabbed, have them right. search your person, have you touch you in uh, Even place, if you're not guilty of anything. Places. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Things like this that you don't really think about. And some people will say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have been walking down the streets with meth, meth anyway. But even still, there has to be some um, baseline or some threshold ab- b- below which, you know, you can't have these yeah, you, indignities I forced upon you. The, the me of maybe... 10 years ago would have said, okay, well, the moral of the story is don't walk down the street with meth. Yeah. But if you look at it that narrowly, you're totally missing the point and the larger implications. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First of all, just on the mething itself, that it, we know that the rates of drug use is pretty similar, if not less, in minority communities than it is in, in white populations, yet African Americans and Hispanics get stopped and arrested and prosecuted more for those crimes than white counterparts. And this only add fuel to that disproportionate fire. Exactly. And so now it's not it's not just like about drugs, it's about who we target going after them. Yeah. So I, I it's sort of like PSA time here, guys. Don't I don't know what the, the message is. Don't go outdoors when you see well, a police uh, officer if you think you might have a warrant because you are completely open to a search now, which is which is so amazing in this um, day because, you know, just after the Orlando shootings, we hear a lot of people very indignant about their Second Amendment constitutional rights. Yeah. And then we have... If they had taken a look at the Fourth Amendment more strictly, then we would definitely not have this case. It is so yeah. bizarre how laxed people seem to mm-hmm. be about infringements on their Fourth Amendment rights. Searches and seizures versus... Yeah. Their gun rights. Yeah. And I think it's maybe because, you know, the right to bear arms is such a quick, easy thing to know and understand, but understanding unreasonable searches and seizures requires a little bit more sophistication. Uh, But make no mistake, this is a much bigger infringement on your rights than anything that the gun control people have been trying to do recently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's just a media issue, really, because I was surprised I hadn't just casually read this story. You know, I had to go hunting for it. And so I think we have a media problem with with our legal system. It requires and, and, a little education. Well, And there's also a question of, had Sotomayor not written this kind of blazing dissent? Because really, well, I, I, the, 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 the articles that I saw were not about the, de- the decision. The opinion. Yeah. The, the articles were about her dissent. So let's yeah. say it was something a, a bit more mild. Would we have even heard about this, this really significant change? I think that's an amazing point, because yeah. I don't think that we would have. So we're, we have to hope that very quickly a case is being kind of you know filed and that will move up to the Supreme Court. 
court that will somehow Overturn define this. this decision to some degree or make this a very narrow, narrow, narrow decision. Yeah. And I just wanted to, to add the point um, that I was trying to make before about the fact that um, you know, before it was the the government's burden to show that um, there was no kind of that you know that, uh, it was just negligence, kind of a lower level. Of, they weren't being flagrant about it. But the way they speak about the need to oh show that um, oh that's not a dragnet uh, search. Um, it actually almost put or there's no history of recurring of, of the police officers going recurring into community. It actually almost puts the burden on the defendant yeah. to show that the police are constantly targeting uh, these communities and they purposefully went out there where that's not even a burden a defendant is supposed to show in the first place. So it also almost changes um, the burden for for the for the prosecution in the first place, which yeah. is another big thing. So this is a big deal. So now we, you all have to know that at any time when you're walking down the street, if a police officer asks for your ID, you must comply. Yeah. No yeah. question about it. You can try to fight it, but we have case law that now kind of goes in their direction. Yeah. Um, pretty scary, actually. Okay. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to... Um, uh, a good word from our, our sponsors who are trying to help small businesses. So small business owners, it's time to be honest about how you feel when dealing with your day-to-day admin work. Admit it, you can't stand it, it's a total grind. The truth is over 5 million small business owners felt exactly the same way until they discovered FreshBooks. For those of you who haven't heard about FreshBooks, listen up. These folks are on a serious mission to help small business owners save time and avoid a lot of stress that comes with running their business. FreshBooks is the dead simple cloud accounting software that's transforming how small business owners handle their paperwork. Using FreshBooks to create and send an invoice literally takes about 30 seconds. There's no formulas or formatting, just perfectly crafted invoices every time. Your clients can pay you online, which often means you end up getting paid a lot faster. There's a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment up front when you're kicking off a project. FreshBooks even can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've emailed. That's an interesting feature. This is only a fraction of what FreshBooks can do for you. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that takes creating or that makes creating and sending invoices extremely simple. It's fast, all online with instant notifications. Plus, send automatic late payment reminders. Lots of people need those. And you can create <laughs> custom branding to reflect your business. You owe it to yourself to feel the full effect of FreshBooks on you and your small business. Plus, if you have any questions, their customer service is absolutely fantastic. No robots, real people. They care so much that if, for some reason, after four rings, someone from customer service can't pick up your call, your call will be routed to all employees at FreshBooks, so you're guaranteed to get help. For a 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com forward slash geek, G-E-E-K, and entered Enter Geek Nerd Tech in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thank you so much, FreshBooks, for your support of Justice is Served so that we can bring this to you every single week. All right, and now to another surprising decision. Uh, The district attorney in Louisiana has opted not to prosecute two Alabama college football players who were found with marijuana and guns what do you think of the DA's reason for not pursuing the charges? 
Well, I mean, initially I was kind of like praising the decision, thinking, oh, what a, what a wonderful decision. I read a little bit deeper. What a wonderful what? Decision. Just thinking, <laughs> like, like, wow, here are two uh, black football players who have been caught with marijuana. And, and, and a white DA yeah. said, oh, that's no, okay. Like, well, wow. Actually using their prosecutorial well, discretion. discretion. I thought to myself, wow, what a different day and age we've come to. But, uh, <laughs> but then we get the reasoning behind it. And the reasoning was he didn't, he really did not want to ruin these two football players' lives. The quote from the press conference yeah. is just almost unbelievable. He's like, I was not willing to ruin the lives of these two young men who had spent so many t- years or their youth uh, working out, sweating, while we were all sitting in air conditioning. Exactly. And I read that quote and immediately I said, oh no, it's reminded me of Brock Turner. Like, <laughs> and it made me go, am I a hypocrite? Am I a hypocrite for, for, like, for thinking this well, is Well, no, but very quickly there's a big, massive difference between rape and marijuana and, that, and, and even gun use. And as I thought about it, I said, wait a minute, yeah, the huge difference. So um, I think it's I think it's a good decision in one respect, but at the same time, it looks like they were guilty. Yeah, I mean, I think, I I agree. I appreciate the fact that he's sensitive to the fact that these are young kids, they're college students, perhaps on a bright path. Alabama's a super huge football school who knows what uh, their future might hold in terms of making it to the pros. Um, But at the same time, people do need to be held responsible for their actions. So while I like the fact that he was sensitive to, uh, to their backgrounds and their potential, I think Athletes shouldn't necessarily gain favor in the justice system just because they're athletes and just because they're athletes for either big blue chip schools or prestigious schools or anything like that. Well, in his defense, and I'm not sure how great of a defense this is, he tried to say that there wasn't enough evidence to prove the case. And so that was the first reason he gave. And then he backed it up with the second reason. Well, I mean, they found the marijuana That's and the gun. So, yeah. That was my question. But when he, when he first said insufficient like, evidence, what, how much evidence more do you need when you have the officer? Perhaps maybe about whose it, who well, it belongs to, which of the two men. Yeah, I mean, there certainly could have been a concern about, I believe with Cam Robinson and Lawrence Hootie-Jones, of whether they would be accusing each other of possession, in which case it would be hard to prove but I mean, it seems like the DA could have. really wanted to, to, it looks like they could have really done some more work. A little to, bit, yeah. a little investigation. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But, you know, Cam Robinson's all SEC, and so I think that obviously weighed into the decision. He started ever since he was a freshman. He's junior now, so I think it was really a football decision. Yeah. But uh, I, I believe they could have been held to account to some measure and still gone on and had bright, dazzling careers. I don't think I don't know if probation would have been an option or, but well, so apparently um, in Louisiana, the the. I guess the minimum sentencing is actually a little bit severe when you have a criminal possession of a firearm paired with um, drugs being present. So I think typically criminal possession of a firearm, it's um, you're not allowed to be, or it's a ma- it's a minimum sentence of a year. Oh, geez. but then it shoots up to five years yeah. if it's in the presence of of drugs. But I think they could have oh. they could have probably charged them with something lesser. I don't know, disrupting the public. There's a bunch of little There were two guys sitting in a car. There, there, there are a bunch of ordinances. <laughs> At 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I feel like something should have been done, and I do agree. I, I'm happy they're not, you know, their football careers are not over, but it, it seems to me very odd that they get no penalty whatsoever from the criminal justice system. Do you yeah, th- they definitely aren't relying on the criminal justice system. I, hopefully that, that coach will impose some... And Nick Saban has indicated no, no sanctions as of yet for the players. Yeah, apparently he's a big believer in... And second chances, which is <laughs> I mean, no, that's good. But I did, I did read that they're expected to undergo drug testing. And that and like, was and, a question and drug that I had. counseling, yeah. okay. firearm safety counseling, okay. things like that. But so certain, actually, but all administered by the program by which you know that wants them to remain remain stars on the field. 
So that's always questionable. Do you know what I mean? They could they could do nothing, and I'm sure there are school <laughs> there. I'm sure there are schools out there that would do absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that they're trying to do something. I know that's why I'm only like halfway irked by this one. I don't like the special privileges to the athletes, mm-hmm. but I do like how. You, you you sort of weigh like really? Am are we going to spend taxpayer resources on? I think I think probably I think they should have charged them with a lesser thing mm-hmm. and maybe pled out to a probation and given them a, a probationary period. And at least that way, you send some message that you're not above the law. You you will be taken to task for these things, and they do have an impact. And of course, a second you know offense would be far worse. I think that's a great middle ground. Yeah, not necessarily ruining people's lives for what some might deem a small infraction. If we're talking about, for example, just the drugs and the gun somehow was worrisome. I, I don't know why we just swept, like <laughs> where, where did this come from? Why does he have this gun? Like, why I, does he have a stolen it, gun? Yeah. And then yeah, there were two guns. One yeah. was a stolen yeah. gun, and one was I, I suppose one of their guns. But why are these two colleagues? kids sitting around with guns in their laps and a stolen one. I don't know. I mean, that sounds weird here in (laughs) California, but you know, down south, I think it's a different scene. Uh, But not to get not charged at all. You're found, usually you're found with criminal possession of a, a firearm, you get charged, so... <laughs> Apparently not in That's this case. That's a bigger case. offense. I, I just hate for people to walk away with the thought that athletes are above the law. They shouldn't be above the law. And that's they what this case gives be, you. Right. It, just the same way Brock, Brock Turner was far more offensive, but this certainly gives you that same that same message. Bad so. taste in your mouth. Yeah. yeah. All right, speaking of something else that gives me a bad taste in my mouth, a the Confederate flag uh, is still flying high in Mississippi, or at least, you know, in the upper Right up, I guess the way we're looking at upper left corner, you know, it's still displayed state. loud and proud. Right, the last state in the Union to still have the flag with the Confederate flag inside of it. North Carolina did with it away with it last year after the Dylan Roof shooting of the of the nine people at church, um, and Mississippi looked at like twenty some odd bills. Uh, yeah. that they were considering about changing, and nothing came of it. Yeah, though a lot of um, institutions, University of Mississippi, um, I believe Southern Mississippi as well, got rid of the, the Confederate flag. Yes. There's still a large portion of the population there that believes that the Confederate flag is a symbol of Southern history. Yeah, um, which includes this thing called slavery, which is a thing <laughs> not to be that proud of. People tend to kind of overlook By that. By that proud, say, I mean of yeah. not proud of at all. But so one man, an attorney, yeah. has... He's over this, and he says that he has filed a lawsuit mm-hmm. um, to get the flag removed as hate speech because he's concerned about the message it sends to the next generation. That incites violence, and yeah. yeah. So this is an interesting approach. Um, you know, we a little review of the First Amendment. We have the right to free speech, but there are certain things that you can't do. Can't incite violence, or um, you know, try and solicit somebody for an illegal behavior or threaten somebody. So this falls under, this potentially falls in under one of the um, exceptions to your right to free speech, hate speech. So if this guy can prove that that flag is hate speech, could he be successful? Certainly, but I think he's going to have trouble proving it's hate speech given the amount of people that do seem genuinely to love the Confederate flag and are not violent and it, or by you know by any means, so I think you you have a, I think you do have. But I don't even know if you have to be violent to be hateful. I th- well, hate speech alone should incite some violence, and so I don't I don't think with what you the, there are different. Is that sev- is it different? Is it inciting violence is one exception to the free speech, yeah. and then uh, hate speech. So 
I don't think that it requires any action, any inciting of violence, anything. Just if it's hateful towards a group. But a lot of people will say yeah. that it it, ha- it has kind of a, a neutral, not, I, I, hate, I hate to use the word neutral, but it has this kind of like... very neutral. They, they would like to say that it has this neutral origin where it is just a, a representation of the Confederacy. Yeah, but everybody the Confederacy with itself, a, which, half which, a brain knows that it's not but that. But they, they, they argue that, it, you know, it's a symbol mm. of the Confederacy, mm. which stood for many things, they will argue this, many things, one of which, yes, includes slavery, yeah. so, but stood so for states' rights yeah. and things like that, and that these people, like the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan and um, D- Dylan Roof, that they kind of misappropriated the image and have turned it into a bad thing, but that the image itself was not originally, Sorry. originally bad. I mean, uh, I, 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 that sounds... I'm just, I'm, that's a great... That's their argument. But it doesn't... But, but usually, uh, usually completely a... Completely lacks... But usually a component of hate speech is that it doesn't cite violence. I don't. I think you have so many instances where that's not the case. And so many cases yeah. where that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dylan Roof's website or social I, media was covered in these... Confederate flag pictures. Yeah, when and then you he see people hanging from trees with the fe- Confederate flag behind them, I mean, it's definitely well, a symbol that's used. I think a lot of people use symbols to um, promote violence and misappropriate symbols to promote violence. And the same t- at the same time, I do believe it does not belong on the flag because of this discriminatory history and the racism that was also cited by um, in Moore's uh, lawsuit. That he believed it so was- that's more of a Fourteenth Amendment yeah. issue rather than a free and speech. And that's the issue I see um, being it being more salient too. I don't think it's going to fall. It'll fall under hate speech. Uh, just too many instances of it being around and not having that element of hate speech. Uh, so I, I think you'll find it more discriminatory um, and racist because. I would say the average person, minority, would see that flag and assume they're not welcome. Assume that... Yeah. yeah. They're hated by yeah. people who promote that flag. Yeah. So I, I do think there might be a little bit more leverage on the 14th Amendment claim. Okay. So what about the argument that this guy has no business using the courts to try and get this done? If the legislature doesn't pass something, you know, then it's a, it's a, it's a no-go. I personally am like that this person doesn't understand the way the law works. This is a totally feasible and yeah. valid way to bring about change. Absolutely. Yeah, if you think something's violative of the Constitution. You have the right to do that. If you yeah. have standing. Whether it will work is a different question. Yeah. But right. Assuming you have standing, you prove basic things like you you face harm yourself and things like that. Yeah. Then I don't see anything wrong with him bringing this claim. And we did see the governor of Mississippi declare Confederate uh, History Month of April. And so I actually thought that was a really great argument to get rid of the Confederate flag. Because, because you don't need it? Because you don't need it. You have a month that does... I mean, there, there are parts of the Confederate history that are positive in some ways for different people and families and heritages. So I actually think it's a great thing that they can have a Confederate uh, history month. And on those days that it's appropriate, you, you show this was the history of the flag. This is, where, this is what it meant at one time. This is how it might have been misappropriated. I think that's a really good middle ground for getting rid of the flag on the, um, on the actual flag of Mississippi. Oh, all right. I agree with this moderate position. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. <laughs> Happened today. Okay. Uh, and finally, the family of the one um, uh, terror victim in Paris who was Californian. Her, her family, no, her name was Noemi Gonzalez. She was a college student uh, going to a Cal State school. Maybe it was yeah. Cal State LA. I can't remember which one. But she was studying abroad in Paris when the terrorist... Um, hit there and she died and now her family is suing social media giants like Facebook 
YouTube. Twitter and Google, yeah. Uh, saying that they were providing material support to ISIS and similar groups by allowing their uh, message to be spread, to recruit people, um, and now they're going forward with this case. What do you think is going to happen here? Uh, a lot of uncertainty <laughs> here. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Google, all of these these uh, platforms where people can provide information, put posts up user-generated content. There's so many people using these platforms that it's hard, it's hard to uh, blame a, um, one of these platforms and, and hand them liability when they have so many users and, and they cannot possibly be aware of every single instance But it of, seems that when people violate their other smaller things that they are on it pretty they quickly. They do, but that, yeah. re- that, that relies upon the users to flag the content, alert Google or YouTube or Twitter, and then Twitter can take it down. But it seems as though there are many, many accounts. For example, I think I read somewhere that ISIS had like 7,000 accounts um, on, on Twitter or something like that, where there, it's just hard to pinpoint every single thing, and that the moment that you take one down, the next one is going to pop up. Yeah, and Facebook Facebook and Google both released statements saying that they do remove things when they're flagged by other users in, yeah. the, in the community. And, and I think they, they both use the language when they're made aware of it. So I guess the question is, what level of obligation do they have to become aware of these? Can they be passive well, I, and wait for it to be reported, or do they have to actively seek it out? Well, I think reasonable awareness, and I think the reasonable awareness Awareness is that sort of crowd, you know, crowd vigilance. All right. So, I mean, when I first read this, I'm like, well, this is a good way to perhaps I, go back. I mean, they I do don't... make it very easy to flag posts that you find offensive. They they make it very simple to flag posts on all those different um, platforms. And but I some understand people don't that find Facebook, this stuff. Offensive. I actually understand that Facebook does take somewhat of a more aggress- aggressive approach to removing these. Um, I mean, because there's like videos of beheadings but on there. Exactly. So, I mean, it's kind of a double edged sword because I, I think a lot of um, investigative uh, organizations can actually use someone's Facebook page to, gl- to glean information because a lot of these terrorist organizations do use Twitter. They do use Facebook to announce their um, plans. Well, yeah. well, not necessarily their plans, but even oh, that, well, it might be um, to proclaim their allegiance or um, to show like a beheading or something like that. So they're definitely using it in a certain way. I think Facebook also takes a look at the friends of people who are on these accounts and it kind of, and it looks into those things. So in one instance, it's 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 helpful. To to kind of see the web that's there, but unfortunately, that platform can also be used to disseminate a message that we don't necessarily you, uh, want to see. And you have to have a balancing act between freedom of speech and privacy as well. So, but there are you know things like these recruitment videos, and I mean, the it, social media can be really strict. Like you know, a woman showing a nipple is like. A huge offense. I, I think that goes but a back to the, is kosher. But that, no, no, no. But that goes yeah. back to the reporting. I think it's really difficult to have a sense of. I mean, imagine all the people in the world that are on Facebook or on Twitter or are using YouTube. It's impossible, I think, for one corporate organization to have enough eyes to monitor all the pages of all of the people who are posting mul- multitudes of information every single day, every single hour. And you don't want to filter and say, "Oh, we're blocking this country from ever posting. We're blocking." Anything oh, I don't think do, that the lawsuit was or, about countries. No, no, it was about users no, no. posting. No, but what I'm saying, the the way Facebook and these other companies could somehow control this is to only have broad blocks on different areas or different uploads. 
And to do that, they would be chilling freedom of speech. And so I think if you're going to say the best way to stop terrorism is to block all um, activity from these two or three regions. But this freedom of speech thing, when we're talking about private companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter... They don't. They're not the government, so they, they're they're technically allowed to infringe upon your free speech because the Constitution talks about the government infringing upon them, not social media platforms and other private individuals or companies. Well, unless they're overreaching for maybe religious reasons, and so now no Muslim can can post on Facebook unless that's how broad these things get. And I think they they would argue that's what you would have to do to stop anything of the nature that Doreen sued for. Oh, man, this is a, a ugly, sort of sad, we're not good, probably going to go anywhere great with this. But I, I don't know. I do, you know, the poor dad who's going through this and who's trying to... Well, and I think this may be part of that grieving a, process. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he, I don't think he wants anybody else to go through this. I, I, I think he's trying to use his, his, his daughter's death to try and do something great to prevent this from happening to anybody else. It's also a fine line, though, in terms of how, what type of speech are we... How, how bad does the speech have to be before um, Facebook or Twitter starts excluding, excluding people? I mean, there's certain speech that's, of course, going to be provocative. Right. It's going to be controversial. Is, is Facebook the one that's responsible for, for drawing the line between what the public should hear I, and what they should It's a good shouldn't? point. I think I the overreaching that they could possibly fall into would lead to more lawsuits for Facebook. So I think they have it right in the way they're doing it so far. All right. Well, that will have to be the last word for this week on Justice is Served. Don't forget to like, comment. You can tweet me at Chelsea Galicia. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Shaka Strong. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ayemyems. All righty, everyone. We'll see you next week on another episode of Justice is Served. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagram me, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.